Hello and welcome to the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Robin Hicks, Deputy Editor of Eco Business. Over the last few weeks, there have been a series of exciting announcements in the fight against climate change. Some of Asia's major carbon emitters have finally committed to reduce their carbon footprints and chart a course of green growth. First came China, which pledged to go net zero by 2060. Then came Japan, which committed to carbon neutrality by 2050. Korea inevitably followed. On today's show, I'm going to be talking to an expert on green growth about net zero targets, how realistic they are, and what they tell us about how countries can develop within the constraints of our planet. Dr. Frank Reisberman is director of the Global Green Growth Institute, which works with governments around the world on plans to develop sustainably and in line with the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Reisberman. Thanks for having me, Rowan. So um, you joined the EcoBusiness podcast on a really um, busy period for climate action, particularly here in, in Asia Pacific. Now, I want to start off um, by asking you a question about your organization, Global Green Growth Institute, which was set up right to provide uh, research and develop sustainable growth plans uh, for countries, particularly de- developing countries. Tell us a bit about the countries you're focused on now in your work. Well, indeed, we are focusing on both least developed countries from the smallest countries uh, in the Pacific, like Kiribati, or very poor countries in Africa, uh, the least developed countries, all the way up to emerging economies and some really large countries like Mexico and Indonesia, uh, rapidly developing countries like Vietnam as well. Right. You mentioned Kiribati there, um, Frank, which is interesting because it's a country that is critically at risk from rising sea levels. Can you tell us, bit, uh, tell us a bit about what you're advising them on their development plans? Indeed, when you go to Kiribati, you feel that you're a bit at the end of the world. You know, it's a, you might think a paradise island, but people are struggling. There's very little income. Uh, more than 80% of the population is uh, overweight, extremely high incidence of uh, diabetes and uh, you know, non-communicable diseases, and uh, under immediate threat of, uh, of climate change, of uh, sea level rise. So we are working with them, particularly not so much on reducing their greenhouse gas emissions, of course, which is the big issue with most every other country. For countries like Kiribati, it really is uh, adapting to climate change and particularly helping them build a climate smart agriculture, a food system that provides them with uh, more fresh food so that it will deal with, if you like, climate resilience, but all the way through their ag and food systems, through their health and nutrition issues. So with Kiribati, yeah, there's a real danger that agricultural systems will become inundated with seawater, so it's very hard to grow crops, right? But there's also a danger that it could become uh, large parts of it um, unlivable, right? Because sea level uh, sea levels are rising so quickly. Uh, yes, there was one former president of Kiribati who had taken out an option on a large piece of land in Fiji, which has higher mountains, uh, in the case that uh, Kiribati became unlivable and the whole population would have to relocate. And of course, climate refugees are already a very big issue around the world. But the current government of Kiribati uh, takes a different view and believes that they should be able to adapt inside uh, the current 
country's borders. That is, of course, a challenge, but it's not impossible. It's not just the rising sea levels, but it's the, the droughts, the less uh, rainfall, the typhoons that are really the critical challenge in uh, much of the Pacific. But of course, on top of other challenges they already had, they had very little you know, uh, sustainable agriculture. Most of their food is imported. Uh, incredibly large numbers of, well, you know, people eating uh, those wonderful instant noodles that are good for industry, but not so much for your health. So it's, a, as in many cases, a combination of, you know, a, what we call a, an unprecedented sustainability crisis. Of course, climate change, but then this year, COVID-19, as we talked about uh, earlier, air pollution, the plastic crisis in the oceans, all these things together lead to an absolutely scary and unprecedented uh, sustainability crisis. And, and Fiji and, and other small island countries down to Kiribati are right in the middle of that. So you mentioned, Frank, uh, COVID, um, the pandemic that we're in the middle of, uh, or possibly at the start of at the moment. Um, I want to ask you about economic recovery plans that countries in Asia Pacific have made. Um, now, GGGI, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, advocates for green economic growth, which um, looks to eradicate poverty, look after people's health and provide decent jobs, as well as hit environmental and climate action targets, right? Um, so what are your thoughts on the economic stimulus programs that have been put into place place in this region so far? Well, yes, you're right. We are focusing on green growth, and that is economic growth that is both sustainable and inclusive, meaning we tend to look at uh, all the environmental impacts, but also in making sure no one is left behind, that it deals with poverty issues and so on as well. Uh, so this was to be the year with a big focus on climate change, of everybody submitting more ambitious uh, contributions to the Paris Agreement. And now this has all been overtaken by COVID. And indeed, the number one concern when governments look at their stimulus plans or the recovery plans is, of course, employment. Uh, we are doing very strong advocacy to show that these things can actually go hand in hand, that investments in uh, green growth deliver both green jobs and can accelerate climate change or climate action, sorry. Uh, and we had worked on that for a number of years. So we had uh, done a study last year to show that meeting the obligations under the Paris Agreement for countries from Mexico to Indonesia to Rwanda generate a very large number of green jobs. So this year, our message to many of those countries is you should continue to take advantage of these actions you prepared for climate action but be more explicit about the green jobs that they create. And that includes from countries like we just discussed in Kiribati, looking at climate resilience can go hand in hand with creating green jobs, all the way to indeed Indonesia, where we showed that looking at their climate commitments can create millions of new jobs. As you pointed out, not all governments do that. Some of them are exclusively focused on uh, employment, some others, like the country we live in, uh, Korea announced a deal that is partly social safety net, so you know supporting people who have become unemployed, partly a so-called digital deal, digital infrastructure and so on, that is also a very high priority in Singapore, 
but then also a large part Green New Deal. And that has the kind of uh, investments that we indeed advocate for, going from investments in renewable energy to renovating buildings to make them more energy efficient, which is also very labor intensive. Less focus on agriculture or on nature-based solutions in Korea, which is pushing the high-tech side more. But we have similar recommendations for our other members and particularly developing countries, uh, the share of, of agriculture, of supporting people in rural areas is usually higher than in, say, Singapore or Korea. So the argument that you guys make for green growth is a powerful one that economies can grow hand in hand with sustainability measures, right? Um, but a recent study by ING Bank uh, found that the COVID stimulus programs of many countries in Asia Pacific had been, and I quote, lamentable. There just was that sustainability piece missing um, as countries have rushed to make sure that um, people are taken care of via um, jobs, etc. Um, so presumably you, you're um, fairly disappointed in the response so far from many Asia, countries in Asia Pacific, for instance, Indonesia, Malaysia, that has just been, despite the powerful argument for green growth, it's been absent from their policies so far. Well, we make a distinction between the immediate measures, uh, the immediate response, and then the recovery. And clearly, the measures taken in the first three months, the first six months, yes, uh, the study that you quote and several others showed that 99% of that was just basically keeping companies upright, making sure nobody was going broke, paying for unemployment and so on. But in the slightly longer term, uh, you know, the, the measures, Korea was a good example. The first measures announced, the first three months, the first six months were all about unemployment. But then in July, and in fact, the president is in the National Assembly today to defend his additional budget proposals on this digital and green deal. And that is where he also made this uh, very welcome announcement that Korea will now tie that green deal in with a net zero 2050 target, which is the, the criticism that we had on these plans when they became public since July. But I do believe that a country like Indonesia that you mentioned, yes, in the first instance, it was all unemployment focused. But we have worked with Indonesia, for instance, and they have developed their so-called low carbon development strategy that is in their new five-year plan. Uh, they are pretty active in uh, reducing reforestation and other things. But it's a little bit like with China, say, 10 years ago. We studied uh, the green, uh, well, the stimulus plans that were put in place in the region after the financial crisis. And yes, uh, while many of those had a green component, in China, for instance, there was a real push for renewable energy in 2008, 2009. But at the same time, there was a big investment in very energy intensive industries. So overall, the brown components definitely outweighed the green. In the meantime, economics have changed quite a bit. So now we are basically making the argument that Yes, uh, going with you know business as usual, governments might still be tempted to quickly push out a whole series of these brown recovery measures, but that's not in their own interest anymore. By now, it's become smarter, economically smarter, to invest in green. And uh, the case is made very strongly uh, by renewable energy. Countries like India 
they were planning to build many, many coal-fired power plants. And then through the auctions they had for renewable energy, found out that that was going to be more expensive than investing in renewables. So in a country like India, those plans for coal-fired power plants went out of the window super quick. Vietnam, not as fast, but it is moving. Indonesia, well, that's the next challenge, if you like. So the countries in the region are moving, not as fast as we would like to see them. That's partly how we work with them, how we provide our advocacy, how we demonstrate what we think are the right policy options. But we do see movement in the right direction. Particularly this week, Frank, we've seen a, a flurry of announcements um, from companies as well as um, big countries. Um, we mentioned Korea, where you're based. I want to ask you about um, net zero announcements and what we should look for in these announcements to tell, um, as regular people, how genuine they are. And obviously, it's great publicity for countries to make these announcements. But what do we look for to make sure that they are genuine? Um, for example, Korea, there was a bit of criticism to begin with that the resolution was not legally binding and is just such a massive undertaking, right? That would re require decarbonization of hugely energy hungry industries like steel, car manufacturing, um, and major shifts in the country's power mix, which is dominated by coal. So, yeah, my question is, how do we make sure that these commitments are genuine? Well, it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem. We see two pathways. Some countries have careful studies to see how far they can go and then make a commitment. Uh, and in that case, there's already a good in underpinning. In other countries, it begins more with a, a political announcement or a you know, an aspirational goal. But in many cases, that then is followed up by, you know, ministries being instructed to go figure out how to make that happen. We saw that with the, the NDCs for the Paris Agreement, for instance. Uh, those were all, you know, crafted uh, in, in a hurry. And in many cases, it was just the Minister for Environment who had agreed to some number. Uh, and yeah, we, we worked with Fiji, for instance, when they became the COP president, they realized they had made a commitment, but it didn't really live, they didn't really have a roadmap or a strong plan for how to implement that. So we, we worked with them to put such a plan in place to make sure that different ministries were involved and that there was some, some realism behind that. And then the year after they said, okay, if we uh, can do what we promised for the NDC, can we also do a, a long-term strategy, 2050? And out of that came that they could do net zero 2050. In fact, if, the, if they get some international financing, they could become, uh, you know, less than zero. They could become a, a carbon sink. So in their case, there was a, a decent study based on which the prime minister felt that he could announce net zero. In other cases, it's a bit more of a, a political statement. And clearly, uh, you know, having China come first and commit to net zero 2060, then have the Japanese prime minister, the new prime minister come out yesterday, uh, that put a certain pressure on uh, on Korea to follow suit. Uh, but in Korea, it was also a little bit the other way around. There was a pretty strong investment package, the Green Deal, uh, but the government sort of stayed away from making a, a clear target associated with it. But, you know, Korean ministries are, are pretty serious, but it is a big undertaking. You're right. So now I think now that the, the president has made this more formal commitment, uh, we can get back to work to see how that Green Deal uh, can deliver that or whether more measures are necessary. And you're, of course, right. 
there are winners and losers in such a transition. And it's clear that uh, not all ministries are as enthusiastic, not all industries are as enthusiastic. Uh, In some countries, like Denmark, we see the private sector play a very positive role. The the private sector was right behind government when the government made an aggressive, uh, you know, 70% reduction by 2030 announcement. In Korea, that has not so far been that much the case. But recently, we saw a major bank, Shinhan Bank, make its own first uh, net zero commitment. We've seen LG Battery make its uh, first uh, net zero commitment. So as the private sector begins to work through what it means for them, we think that will also give the government more confidence that they can indeed implement uh, what are indeed uh, you know pretty challenging uh, tasks. But of course, uh, we believe it's absolutely necessary to to fight the crisis that we are all facing. So you mentioned there, Frank, that there are inevitably some losers um, in going carbon neutral in various countries. By that, you're referring to perhaps big traditional industries. Um, Are there other parts of society that we're overlooking that could lose out from um, going net zero or it's a win-win for everyone? Well, we believe that it is a win-win for society. You know, if you add everything up, that the the benefits outweigh the cost. When we do these studies, the green growth plans, the long-term strategies, it shows that for society as a whole, uh, it is a win-win situation. But of course, there are winners and losers. There are industries that uh, won't be able to keep up. There are jobs that are going to be lost. So that is why there is a a strong argument for the so-called just transition most governments, uh, the EU, the UNFCCC, all have active debates on how much money do we need to make available either to reskill workers or to, uh, if you like, compensate some of the people, at least temporarily. On the other hand, you can't keep putting good money after bad. Some industries either reform or will disappear. But yes, if you have heavy industries that are used to building uh, coal-fired power plants, and during a COVID-19 crisis, government is, of course, very tempted to help them build the next coal-fired power plant, even though that doesn't really fit with the story of green growth that we are just explaining. So that is why in Korea, our campaign for blue skies and net zero 2050 made two uh, clear outcome, uh, if you like, demands of government. One was the net zero target for Korea, but the other was also for Korea to stop investing in fossil fuel projects, particularly coal-fired power plants in countries like Mongolia or Vietnam, where indeed uh, Korean companies are building such, uh, uh, such projects. I wanted to ask you, Frank, about um, an argument that I see quite a lot um, made by some developing countries that argue um, against green growth, right? The argument goes something like this, you know, you guys in the West, um, you became rich off the back of fossil fuels, um, particularly coal. Um, We have lots of coal, for example, not picking on any country, but say Indonesia, we have a lot of coal. And to burn that coal, we would help um, raise people out of poverty and uh, give plenty of jobs. Um, So how strong is that argument, Frank, in the people that you talk to, policymakers and people in government that, particularly in developing countries, they say, well, you guys in the West, you've already got rich. Um, Let us take our own development path um, with or without fossil fuels. 
I think it's a very strong argument that countries like Kiribati that we discussed didn't cause the climate change, the climate crisis that they're confronted with. So certainly in helping countries uh, adapt, uh, rich countries uh, have a, an obligation to help uh, those developing countries. You know, that's why there are things like the Green Climate Fund. It's part of the commitment that the developed countries have made to the developing countries that at the time they said they would put $100 billion a year on the table to help those countries with, if you like, the international just transition. On the other hand, the argument that indeed developing countries make that they should be allowed to use coal because developed countries did that earlier, that's not very strong because frankly, coal is no longer the best option. So if you're a developing country, if you invest in a coal-fired power plant, you're going to be stuck with a stranded asset, with a facility that produces more expensive power. You know, many countries then have to import that coal. So it's not just the environmental cost, it's the straight up commercial cost, meaning renewable energy has become the cheapest option and you are a thief of your own wallet if you keep investing in those uh, fossil fuel alternatives. That's a very strong argument uh, that not all governments are aware of. You know, some of them say, well, I've done the study three years ago, five years ago, and indeed prices have come down very rapidly. Or we, so they're not aware that renewable energy is now cheaper. Or we have many arguments over the fragility of the net. You know, of course, sun and wind is not a 24-hour proposition. So can the fragile grid in developing countries uh, deal with that? That's a real argument as well. But as the price of batteries comes down, or as a number of countries are uh, in possession of hydro power plants, uh, Hydro works very well together with solar or wind. They can provide the uh, energy in times when there is no sun or wind. Batteries have become so much cheaper that they've become uh, an attractive replacement for all islands where they're currently getting their power from diesel, for instance. So we do see that green growth is simply an economically attractive proposition for countries. Even a country like Indonesia, we've worked on them on the least a low carbon development strategy for the next five and then next 20 years. And even for Indonesia, in the long run, more jobs, more growth will come from a, a green growth strategy. And that's, a, I think, a fantastically strong argument. So I wanted to ask you, Frank, of the countries that you've worked with or countries that you've observed um, over the years, which do you regard as green growth success stories? And what is there that we should uh, learn from them? Well, there are not that many countries that do everything right. Uh, you know, I, I guess maybe Denmark is a, a fairly shining example, small country also, and they have some other big advantages. Of developing countries, there are quite a few that have something to share. I mean, India a few years ago made massive strides in uh, renewable energy that other countries can learn from. They've set up their International Solar Alliance, for instance, because they want to share that uh, experience with others. India is also pretty advanced in solar irrigation, for instance, because they have such a large irrigation industry, where other countries have something else to share. Uh, in Indonesia, for instance, we work pretty hard at uh, turning around all the deforestation that uh, they've had for so many years. In Singapore, you were often confronted with 
haze that was caused by uh, burning peatlands in Indonesia. So we worked there with the government on uh, restoring those degraded landscapes. Uh, and they believe they have some real lessons that other countries uh, can benefit from as well. So we, we see not too many whole examples that are completely successful. Korea, for instance, had uh, was very proud of its uh, Green Deal 10 years ago after the financial crisis, but then had some setbacks as well. But yes, they certainly have uh, a lot to share more in the area of uh, the digital uh, side of the of the of the green growth story, as I believe has Singapore. So, uh, Robin, I, I think there are quite a few countries that have uh, parts of successes to share, uh, and not too many that are, you know, knowing it all. And that partly gives uh, organizations like my own uh, uh, its a reason for existence. We are a network of uh, 38 member countries now that share their experience. So when one country feels it has more to share, then it uses our network to to share those stories and that experience uh, with others. So you mentioned GGGI's uh, members. You have more than 30 or so members. But one I notice is not among them is the United States, which is obviously famous for um, very soon withdrawing from the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. Um, I want to ask you about the US, given that the, the elections are just around the corner. And indeed, let me remind you, you, you probably remember that the Obama government was a key actor, a key stakeholder in putting the Paris Agreement together in, at the time, bringing the Chinese government to the table. So we, we owe the US, even though it sounds maybe funny at this time, a great deal uh, for having helped put the, the Paris Agreement together. Clearly, the Trump government uh, hasn't kept that up. Uh, and while we might have worried shortly after President Trump's election that the whole Paris deal would be derailed, the fact that uh, China stuck with it, the fact that Europe, to some extent, uh, took over the leadership from uh, the US, that has helped. Uh, but yes, it would have been better. It would have been faster. It would have been massively more helpful if the US would have been pushing rather than uh, what the federal government has done. At the same time, uh, many private sector companies in the US uh, have seen where the future lies, if you like. Uh, President Trump, for instance, made all these commitments to save the coal industry. Well, he just can't. You know, The coal industry in the US is uh, not savable because it's been bypassed first by fracking, natural gas, and then by renewable energy. So companies, cities, state governments have all moved ahead of the federal government in the US and in the in the COPs, in the, in the climate change meetings, you famously had two stands. You had the formal US government stand, and then there was a second stand just outside saying, we are still in, where you could see governors, uh, companies, and others, pretty important stakeholders who were keeping up uh, the banner. So yes, uh, it will not be a surprise to you that from where we sit, we hope that uh, uh, Mr. Biden will be President Biden uh, soon. And he has already uh, committed to rejoin the Paris Agreement. And uh, we know that there will be many uh, parties in the US who would be ready to uh, to rejoin that, that effort. How hopeful are you that uh, Biden will steer the US in another direction? 
Well, uh, all countries uh, have to increase their ambition. The U.S. is still the largest, so if the U.S. doesn't increase its ambition in uh, its NDC to the Paris Agreement, obviously that has a, a, a you know follow-on effect, right? It is great that the EU has kept its uh, side of the bargain, if you like, and uh, through the Green Deal and through the increased commitments is doing well, and there are quite a few other countries also. But if the U.S. joins that, uh, together with the commitment we've seen from China and so on, where, of course, there's still a lot of work to be done, the chances that we will be able to meet the uh, very challenging goals of the Paris Agreement are are much larger. That, that is clear. Uh, you know, we're hoping that the U.S. Uh, at home, but also using its voice in uh, in all its relationship with other countries. We, we work, for instance, with U.S. embassies, of course, in developing countries. And almost all of those had very strong uh, climate action targets in their partnership with those countries. Some of those have survived the last four years. But if there is another Trump presidency, I think uh, all of that will be pretty definitively out of the window. Whereas if there is a Biden uh, presidency, we expect that to be brought back, uh, reinforced and, and be a force for good. We can only but hope that uh, <laughs> the right person um, wins the US presidential election for, for all of our sakes, I think. I'm um, just going back to um, net zero announcements which is sort of related. But yeah, as I mentioned, as we've discussed, we've seen a flurry of them in the last few weeks. Um, and you talk to senior people in government in, in Asia Pacific. Do you think we're likely to see a domino effect um, of other countries declar uh, declaring net zero targets? Uh, yes, I think the announcement you saw today in Korea was in a way the domino effect already. It was China and Japan and then Korea would find it difficult not to, if you like. Uh, Korea, the President Moon will also host the so-called P4G, Partnering for Green Growth and the Global Goals Head of State Summit in uh, May 2021. He is going to invite a lot of those heads of state and he is going to try to convince them to, if they haven't already, make similar commitments. Uh, UK, of course, as COP26 president, we had uh, Secretary uh, Alok Sharma here in Korea uh, the last few days um, in our office, uh, meeting with ministers to convince them that indeed net zero 2050 is what Korea needs to do uh, and that uh, the UK is ready to work with Korea uh, to make sure that there is indeed very solid action behind those targets. Like that, I believe, uh, you know, China, Japan, Korea, they want to be leaders in Asia. They want to work with uh, partner governments uh, to convince them to uh, to join the club. So final question for you, um, Frank. I want to know how optimistic you are that we can meet the challenges of the Paris Agreement over the next uh, 10 years, it is. By 2030, we hope to have um, dramatically reduced emissions. How hopeful are you? Well, I have to warn you, I'm a glasses half full person. I'm always optimistic. I don't believe in giving up, if you like. And we see so many, you know, both technically and commercially viable solutions that I, I have to be optimistic uh, that we can make a change. It's not going fast enough. But then on a day like today, when indeed uh, we see those commitments like made in Korea and knowing that, you know, it's not just an empty shell, but there is a, a green deal behind it here. 
seeing the Green Deal in the in the EU. Uh, we had sessions here in GGI where people are explaining how that's going to work out in Europe, but also what that means for the partners of European countries in engagement with Europe. I, I believe that, yes, we all will have to push as hard as we can. Uh, we won't get there by leaning back, if you like. We'll have to lean forward and, and step it up. But uh, I'm... I'm hopeful that we can accelerate uh, the necessary action, that we can use recovery from COVID-19 to make sure that we don't only look at greenhouse gas emission reductions, but at jobs, that we hopefully will look at a bit more the set of sustainability challenges that all play together. You know, the loss of biodiversity, the plastic crisis, the air pollution, all of these are signals that we have to transform the way we run the economy. We, of course, call that green growth. And yes, we are uh, we are optimistic that that is the way forward and that it's feasible as well. Really good to end our discussion on a positive note. Uh, Dr. Frank Reisberman of the Global Green Growth Institute, thank you very much for joining the Eco Business Podcast. My pleasure, Roman. This podcast was hosted by EcoBusiness, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com, follow us on social media or subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.